You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Brett Girard to our podcast. In 2020, he jumped into action as the testings are on the White House Coronavirus Task Force to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. His background is uncanny in how it set him up to be the right person at the right time to lead the testing rollout across this country. We can't wait for you to hear his story. In today's episode, Dr. Girard tells us about his early years as a doctor when a pharmacist came with him on rounds in the ICU. It was like an angel descended from heaven, he says, when the pharmacist shed light on complex medications, prescribing guidelines, and drug interactions. And he says that pharmacists can do just about anything you ask them to do, like give 300 million COVID-19 vaccines and save easily 1 million American lives. So with that said, let's dive right in. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Girard. As you know, this show is focused on charting a better way in healthcare, and I think that mission just might resonate with you, especially given your passion for innovating, for improving public health and medical science. So thanks for being here. I am very excited to be with you, and thank you for having me. You certainly have had an interesting and inspiring career. A pediatrician, a four-star admiral, assistant secretary for health, acting FDA commissioner, and the COVID-19 testing czar as part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, just to name a few of your incredible experiences and accomplishments. And with a career like yours, it's always great to start from the beginning. Where did you go to college? Start us out there. Well, that's really reaching way back, but I grew up in a small town uh, outside of New Orleans called Marrero. It was uh, quite a small town. Now it's just a suburb or the big city. Uh, But I I grew up there. My family are Cajun. Uh, My mother was a police officer. My father was a part-time police officer and worked in the oil field. No one in my family had ever gone to college. So I wound up being the first person to go to college. I really didn't know very, very much or much about college, but I thought I might be interested in going into debate in in, in college because I was doing that in high school, wound up quite by accident applying to Harvard, got in there and went because people who worked with my father who had been to college told me that if you get into Harvard, you really need to go. But uh, I really started being interested in science really seriously in high school. In high school debate, my senior year, it was all about medical policies and how to reform the medical system did a lot of public health, but my partner and I got very, very interested in vaccination and the role of vaccination and how vaccination could change uh, both the United States and globally. How did vaccination come up? Uh, There was a lot of measles outbreaks, actually. Children were getting measles and people were dying uh, with measles uh, in the 90s. And what I learned later, because I sort of battled measles at every stage of my career, you know, there's this up and down cycle where people get vaccinated and there's no measles, and then people get complacent, or the system doesn't work or doesn't push it, vaccination rates go down and everybody gets measles again. So there was a measles outbreak. And, you know, you just ask some silly questions, like I tend to do all my career is like, why do we have measles outbreaks? Can't we prevent this? Isn't this an ancient disease in the United States and something we can do something about? So 
that's really how I got interested in that. And my, and my partner and I, and both of us wound up going to medical school. The children's hospital was something that was very, very attractive to us. So after a few times trying to get in the front door and they really wouldn't let us in because we're not qualified to go meet, we literally went around the back, snuck up the freight elevator, got off the floor where immunology was and walked into the first office that was there. And the professor who was there after being a little stunned about who we were said, well, if you're this motivated, you can come work with us. And we worked in his lab for three years and were able to go see patients. So it was just a tremendous opportunity. But uh, I tell people, if you can't get in the front door, sometimes literally you got to go in the back. You clearly had found something early, early on through measles, of all things, right? Um, that drew you to vaccinations through to um, college and pursuing that. That's super interesting. And then you focused on infectious disease. So take us through to that. You know, I stayed working in a lab and I did pediatrics training and I was always interested in infectious disease and then did uh, an ICU fellowship. So technically I'm a pediatric critical care physician and uh, continuing my research work. You know, I'd been in and out of some labs, but had the opportunity to train both informally and then as a pediatric scientist training fellow in the lab of Bruce Boitler. Now, Bruce Boitler won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 2011, and I was able to work with him. So this was in the early 90s, working on the fundamental question, which bothered me since high school, is why did people get sick with infection? I mean, when you get an infection, what makes, what makes you sick? And Bruce spent his entire career understanding the pathways about how different pathogenic viruses and bacteria trigger an immune response. And it's really your immune response with, which gets you sick and how we might interrupt that or, or deal with that in a medical way. So I was able to do that. And I think sort of the big, the big sort of exclamation point was when I was in fellowship an early, early faculty member in the ICU, there was a, a tremendous, a historic outbreak, the largest in 50 years of meningococcal disease. People call it the college meningitis or meningococcal meningitis or meningococcemia. This is a really horrible disease caused by a bacteria. It's not very contagious, but it is contagious by pretty much sharing saliva and living in close spaces. So it's a disease of those sort of in preschool and those in college because, you know, you're in close environments and you share a lot of utensils and everything else. So we had a tremendous outbreak in North Texas as well as the Northwest United States. So instead of seeing two or three children a year, we were seeing 30 or 40 with a pretty high mortality, loss of limbs. And this really brought, uh, brought a, a tremendous focus to my life, building a small team. Um, literally on Christmas Eve one year, we had five cases come in, which was unprecedented. And it was an emotional experience. It was a jarring experience. It's a maturing experience, but it was an experience that we knew we had to innovate. Because despite being in one of the best ICUs in the world, children were still losing arms, legs, a few of them dying. And we started a global network of clinical trials uh, using some very novel agents to treat these children, but also how to organize healthcare. Because part of it is new treatment and part of it is just getting people transported to the right facilities, which means, you know, you're doing logistics. You know, instead of bringing a helicopter out, 150 miles, you take a fixed wing plane and you send the team out there and do everything you would do when you got back, but you do it at the place where you picked up the child. So, because the hours really matter. That really focused me in a real meaningful way. When I ask people to talk about their background to lead me up to what prepared them, 
I always get something interesting, but yours is so clearly, it, it just prepared you for COVID. I mean, me, from measles to vaccines in college, where you were working in college to working with the Nobel, you know, eventual Nobel Prize winner to college meningitis and the public health and even the logistics. Right. And the biggest turn was during this meningococcal outbreak, our research was getting pretty well known. There was a PBS uh, frontline series about the killer on campus, killer disease on campus. And we were featured in that. And then what really was a big change in my life is I met someone who was affiliated with uh, a small academic group, a sort of a free thinking frontier group associated with an agency called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which I had never heard of. I'm embarrassed to say, but DARPA was started after Sputnik to make sure that the U.S. would always be a leader in innovation. And it's known for creating the Internet. What I learned is DARPA was very concerned about the threat of biological warfare and also uh, upcoming pandemics. And I was asked to be part of the 16 member group that would work many, many weeks a year with DARPA, go with the military. If I could help my country, I wanted to do this. And it seemed a natural extension of what I was doing. So I did that for multiple years, but in 2003, after six or seven years, and again, I was living a dual life. I was chief medical officer at the hospital, having a research lab, but by 2003, I was spending 60 or 70 days a year doing federal government work, sort of in a dual life. Yeah, I had a top secret SEI clearance. I was out with the Marines on Navy ships, uh, doing pandemic preparation. But DARPA said, it's time for you to come to DARPA. You won't have a career here because DARPA is very short term, four or five years. You'll probably lose your previous career, but the country needs you to come help. We're in a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we needed the medical expertise, but we also were needing expertise about biological warfare uh, and pandemic preparation. And uh, I got called in October that they needed me. By January, I was in D.C. and abandoned my former life. How crazy is that? But uh, that's the big twist. And of course, DARPA really put me working with the federal government, understanding how defense and health and human services meet up and, and work together and really developing programs uh, some of which led directly into some of the things we did during COVID. For example, this was before I got to DARPA, but Cepheid, one of the most amazing diagnostics that's used all over Africa now, but it was a DARPA project because we wanted a corporal on the battlefield to be able to do PCR and to be able to not have to do sample preparation, but be able to stick a swab into a machine and get a PCR result. And so we funded Cepheid to do that. And that led to their machine, which is really the first totally self-contained microfluidic, take a swab, put it in a machine and get a PCR test, which is being used all over Africa for HIV and tuberculosis. But of course it was available during COVID. So let's fast forward then to 2017. The president nominated you to be a member of the commissioned corps of the public health service for the U.S., as well as assistant secretary of HHS. In 2019, the president appointed you acting FDA commissioner, and your top priorities at HHS were addressing the opioid crisis. You addressed vaccine hesitancy and improving the care of patients with sickle cell disease, right? How did this portfolio tap into your passions and your expertise? I, I told my wife after four and a half years at DARPA that DC is a very challenging environment, but 
uh, if I ha- ever had the opportunity to go back uh, to DC and serve, you know, we ought to consider it. And the two things I would really love to do would be the Assistant Secretary for Health, also known as the ASH, or potentially the Surgeon General. And I was very fortunate to be called upon by the transition team. Uh, initially, they called me to work in defense or in intelligence because my background from DARPA had been so much in that. And I said, look, I'll serve the country anyway, but I really want to be public health. Our office made policy like to develop and write the national vaccine plan. So the national vaccine plan is written not by CDC or someone else. It's done by my office within the office of the secretary on the HIV strategy. uh, We write the physical uh, activity guidelines for America with the Department of Agriculture. We do the nutrition guideline, but you could also have other priorities that you bring there. And sickle cell disease was one that was very important to me because I had taken care of a lot of children with sickle cell disease, horrible disease, 100,000 Americans millions around the world, premature death. The average lifespan is in the 40s, but many die in their teens or 20s. And it's been a disease that had sort of been neglected from the research side uh, and innovation side. And I really wanted to bring light to this disease because we always talk about health equity and the underserved. And my wife and I, honestly, we did a lot of mentoring programs where we mentored children from the inner city. I mean, when I mean mentor, I mean multiple days a week, they were a member of our family. And uh, one of the children we meant, mentored, whom we are very close with, uh, Shamanika, uh, had sickle cell disease. So I took care of her in the hospital and she was probably hospitalized 40 times when I was there, but also was her mentor. And we grew up with this disease sort of as part of our family. We did a lot of things for that. And from an innovation side, we knew there was going to be a genetic cure for sickle cell disease and we're getting close. And there were a lot of things we needed to get ready for, like we're going to talk about curing a genetic disease, but we can't get these children immunized or into the healthcare system. So how do we square that circle? And of course, we're going to have a genetic cure, but it's going to be $3 million a year. How do we pay for it? How does the country think about that? So there was a lot of innovation in policy. And then opioids, because you brought it up. The one thing I knew I was not going to be doing was opioids because everybody was doing opioids, right? It was in the headlines. Surgeon General was interested. NIH was interested. So of course, a month after I got there, the secretary said, uh, there's a lot of activity, but we need a single point of accountability to bring all the agencies together to focus on things like collateral damage. Like if we do all these opioid regulations, what about people in real pain? So, you know, we put together a comprehensive plan with prescribing guidelines. Uh, the NIH HEAL initiative came out of that, working with the FDA on new mechanisms, new medicines, really pushing naloxone treatment. Uh, We in our administration were very supportive of needle exchanges uh, and distributing naloxone. And of course, destigmatizing this and putting out tremendous public service announcements, uh, reaching children, adolescents, getting billions of dollars through Congress to support care, treating this as a public health emergency, not a criminal emergency. And that was very important when we declared a public health emergency because we were not trying to make bad people good. We were trying to make sick people well. So let's turn to COVID-19. COVID-19 pandemic emerges. When did you first sense that this virus was going to become a pandemic? Do you remember your first thoughts? Well, I, I was involved very early, but not from the policy side or the, or the task force. As the leader of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, which is a military branch, it's not armed. It was started in 1798, and we've been in uniform since 1889. We are the nation's deployable healthcare force. 
we uh, work at agencies. CDC has 800 or 900 officers who were there in uniform. But when a crisis hits, we deploy. So we got the call very early. In fact, a couple of days into, uh, into 2020, the call to be ready to deploy to bring American citizens back from Wuhan and ultimately from the cruise ships and to set up screening. So my entire core was very involved. So in, in mid-February, far before this became even a healthcare crisis or even multiple people dying, I had my chief of headquarters set up 15 strike teams of 100 officers each, preparing for the fact that we could be in a situation where the healthcare system would be overrun and we would have to deploy our teams around the country to convention centers and other places should that occur. Now, we thought this was overkill very early, but you know, you always prepare for the worst. And then I will remember March 4th, I was down at the CDC and this was still very early uh, when we only had a few cases. I went and I said, you know, it's great talking to the CDC director and being the op center, but I want to talk to the modelers, the people who were actually modeling the pandemic. And they told me on March 4th that their predictions were that up to a million people could die in the United States from COVID. Their best guess was 250,000, but up to a million. And of course, this was the first time that my greatest fears from a month before seemed that they could be real. To me, you know, that's when I had the sinking sick feeling in my stomach that this was, this was going to be a catastrophe over, over potentially years. Even though we were preparing for it, now it was becoming real. You were tapped to be a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and your responsibility was that testing czar. So this is pre the vaccine, right? Can you talk about that? What happened? During that week after I came back, it was clear that the U.S. was falling way behind in testing. So much like opioids and much like another, uh, many other initiatives, the secretary said, I need somebody to have all the authority, but all the responsibility and bang, you're the coordinator for testing. The next day before it was publicly announced, Politico already knew about it and called me the testing czar. And that's how that came. But that day I went to the White House. It was on a Friday, March 13th. President said, come on stage with us. And on that day, they announced that we would have a national testing program to be announced on Sunday. I had just become the testing czar and literally there was nothing. There was not a swab, not a test. There were no numbers, no organization. And that weekend, literally, we designed the national testing system and rolled it out on that Sunday night and had 40 test sites in parking lots within a week doing hundreds of thousands of tests. But it was always our intention from that moment one that we needed to do something quick and to learn the method. Immediately after that, once we had a couple technical breakthroughs, it was the pharmacies that was going to be the lead for testing. Now, why do you say that? Well, I learned about pharmacists early in my career. When I was in the ICU way back when, as a fellow, we had our first PharmD that actually came on routes with us. And it was like uh, an angel descended from heaven, uh, this person who was able to go through all these complex medications and make new prescribing guidelines and understand the drug-drug interactions and how we could better dose to treat people. And I was just amazed because this was all things that I didn't know that the pharmacist brought. And I was blown away about how much they knew and how holistic they were and how, how much of a utility player pharmacists could do just about anything you ask them to do. And so we knew uh, when we were doing the testing program 
that pharmacists were an untapped resource. And as it says, 95% of the American population lives within five miles of pharmacies. And we know where the areas of social vulnerability so we knew from that first moment, as soon as we got the system sort of up and running and understood how it could work with heavily federally run, FEMA run, public health service run, that the next step would be pharmacies. And the big thing we needed to do was to get out of the nasopharyngeal swab into the nasal swab because you can't really do high throughput wearing PPE and have the pharmacist away from their day jobs doing that. You needed the self-swab. And only a couple of weeks later, we were able to get that approved. And then we rolled it out to pharmacists and pharmacies. We had very little regulations. They had to do tests on people that needed a test by national guidelines. They needed to report the results. Uh, we had a variety of options, uh, including setting up all the contracts for them to send the test outside until they got their own testing. And we would reimburse from federally just on a flat fee. We did not want red tape. We wanted this to be something that was easy. And that led from that program to three successive programs, building, building a nationwide network of testing so that from the federal side, not including all the private sector side, we had over 6,000 pharmacies within our te national testing program, independent of all the other programs in private practice, private sector that the pharmacies did. And we knew pharmacists were there and could come to the rescue. There was just an article published about the role of pharmacists in the American, uh, in the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association, which basically says that pharmacies conducted over 50 million tests. And this was very important to us because two thirds of our pharmacies were in areas of high social vulnerability. Pharmacists gave almost 300 million vaccines for COVID and 50 million vaccines for childhood diseases and influenza. And if you look back and do some modeling, pharmacists were responsible easy, easily for the saving of 1 million American lives and about $400 billion, maybe $450 billion in healthcare expenditures. So um, I didn't mean for you to wind me up, but I feel very passionately about the role of pharmacists as a solution to our acute problems like pandemics, but also our chronic health problems, certainly for testing, which I was involved, but also because I was on the task force and had the authority under the PREP Act, was able to provide these authorities so we could do Operation Warp Speed and let the pharmacists go out and do the vaccines that they needed in the pharmacy and also at uh, long-term care facilities. There's over 8 million vaccines given by pharmacists at nursing homes. That saved countless lives and needless suffering. We're coming to the end of the official pandemic. The primary care shortage is real across the country. We have one study that shows that this was a year ago, so we're now a year into it, that there was an expectation that one in five primary care providers would leave the practice in the next two years. And the nursing shortage and the pharmacy technician shortage is real as well. Where do you see opportunities for a, an expanding care team including pharmacists, to help with these shortages now based on the COVID-19 experience that we had? The first thing we need to do is make sure that all the authorities that pharmacists were able to have during the public health emergencies persist after the public health emergency is no longer current. And moving forward, it's so obvious that pharmacists need to be part of the distribution of healthcare you know, we've passed the point that 
we should expect people to go 30 miles into a major academic medical center and wait in line and be in all these buildings. You know, we have to bring healthcare to where people are. And pharmacies are where people are. They're close to the community. Pharmacists are some of the most trusted, if not the most trusted, healthcare providers. They have the training. If a person is HIV positive, they could put them on antiretroviral therapy right on the spot. And if they're not and they're eligible, they could go on PrEP to prevent HIV. There are 40,000 cases a year of HIV in the United States. And uh, it was a major initiative we started in 2019, but there was no reason for that. We could prevent all of those cases and get it down to less than a thousand cases within a few years. I think that's an incredible role for pharmacists. Uh, screening for chronic kidney disease. We now have drugs that could prevent the progression to end-stage renal disease, dialysis, and need for transplant. Who better knows the people at risk than the pharmacist? You know who's getting insulin. You know who's got diabetes. You know who has hypertension. We could prevent, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year and tens of thousands of lives lost. And the third thing I will say, aside from these acute sort of uh, case studies that, you know, you try to get across, um, you know, pharmacies need to be involved in day-to-day care because so much of this is prevention. Um, it's not about, you know, getting a drug for your diabetes, but it's about promoting healthy habits, healthy eating. Uh, pharmacists are office, often in grocery stores or they're in pharmacy chains that have nutrition and appropriate things. It's about getting the right type of exercise. And these are things that pharmacists are in the community and can work behind the counter, but also, you know, it, you know in the churches, you know, in the schools, you know, in the civic centers as trusted sources to kind of change these behaviors. Now you're the CEO of Altessa Biosciences. What is the mission and what innovations are you pursuing there? Altessa is a small team. It's a spinoff from Emory University that is developing more oral antiviral medications uh, against common respiratory viruses because we saw the tremendous impact that drugs like molnupiravir and Paxlovid had on COVID. And it was made possible because of those innovations, but also the linking to testing, right? You know, I signed about $7 billion of checks for testing when I was the testing czar, and we created all these amazing platforms. But how can we use it for things aside from COVID? Like we need to diagnose flu and get that treated. In the future, we'll have treatments for RSV um, and other viral diseases, and even rhinovirus, which is one of the viruses that my company is working on in our most advanced products. Because much like COVID, rhinovirus is a cold if you're young and healthy, but for people with chronic diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or cancer or lung transplants, stem cell transplants, rhinovirus can be a death sentence. We now have the ability to test people due to all the innovations in COVID and potentially treat them. So uh, Altessa is developing the drugs, but we're also working on the testing side to be able to build upon what we did during COVID so that everybody, particularly at-risk people, can have tests at their local pharmacy, for sure, uh, potentially uh, in the home setting, that can diagnose what virus they have, and then the pharmacist or the healthcare provider or telehealth or someone else can get them immediately on treatment. So it's really building on the COVID paradigm, but extending it to the myriad of other viral diseases that have been you know, plagues on our population for hundreds of years. Let's turn to, to today. What are the top three biggest things you see in global or domestic healthcare today where you think there clearly has to be a better way? First is, I really believe, and when I was in HHS, Secretary Azar was a big proponent of this, in value-based care. 
as opposed to just fee-for-service care. And why is this important? Well, it's important because about 75 or 80% of your overall health outcome has nothing to do with your medical care that you receive. It has to do with your nutrition, your ability to have places to exercise in the community, um, your habits, which are often influenced by the social determinants of health. You know, the biggest predictor of opioid overdoses in certain communities was the closing of their major employer. So uh, there's a very good study about when car manufacturers closed, the opioid rates went up. So the idea of value is not to pay people for a specific service that you have to document a hundred times here and there in an electronic health record, but to pay you for outcomes, right? For keeping people healthy. And if that means prescribing food, if that means uh, working in the community to provide safe places to exercise, to get children in, in programs, then we have to switch this focus about sick care to health care. Secondly, to go along with that is everything we need to do to distribute health care. And we talked about this again. It, it's time that we stop bringing people to health care. We have to bring health care to people. The hub and spoke models do exist. And this is where pharmacists and pharmacies are so critical because they're within five miles of of everybody, of 95% of people in the country, and they're accessible, right? How many times a week do I go into my local pharmacy for whatever it is? But it's also community health workers. It's getting people into the community and it's making everybody a part of the healthcare system, including the pastor at the church who could do a whole lot uh, working with, uh, you know, uh, with pharmacists or physicians or nurses that are part of the community to help doing that. I think the third piece is innovation. We do need to continue to innovate, uh, both electronically so that healthcare records could be accessible and available. Cause if you don't have the information, you can't do anything to, you know, items like bringing the cost of genetic therapies down. We're in a whole new frontier where we're going to be able to cure, you know, millions of people with genetic diseases, but it's too expensive. We can't afford it. So we need, you know, the innovation that DARPA brought to creating Moore's law for semiconductor chips which is why, you know, you have in your phone more power than NASA had for the moonshot. We need to do the same things to bring costs down. And I think finally, and I talk about this a lot because I was the U.S. representative to the executive board of the World Health Organization starting during the pandemic. You know, a pandemic anywhere is a threat everywhere. And we really need to strengthen global cooperation. The WHO is, is a flawed organization. It's a political organization. But it is a multilateral organization that we can improve and we can work with to bring the standards up around the globe so that if there are outbreaks of Marburg or Ebola or, you know, God forbid, Nipah virus or another coronavirus, we could handle that much better, both locally to keep it from becoming global. Okay, so with all of the innovation in your career, I just have to ask you this question. I ask everybody about where they find inspiration. I'm fascinated by it. How do you get inspired? I get inspired by patients. Uh, I get inspired by families. It's all about the patient and the interaction between, you know, a provider and a patient. And, you know, during the middle of the pandemic, you know, I'd go to my local pharmacy and see what, the, literally across the street from where I lived and see what the pharmacist was doing and interacting with the patients. And, you know, from, from people who are just struggling, you know, day to day, uh, from the patients with sickle cell that I talk to on a regular basis, you know, and just from day-to-day -day people going through their struggles, that's what really inspires me. Now, the mechanism to fix that 
is sometimes, you know, providing care to that person right there or just comforting them or getting them to the right person. And sometimes the solution is going back to Washington to make big policy changes. But my inspiration is from is from individual people and, and what they go through and what they need. Um, and you see them every day. They're all around you. You don't need a pandemic. You just need to open your eyes and see people who are in need and also the incredible people in this country who reach out and give of their time, their money, their food, their resources, you know, everything just to help someone else. That's my inspiration and always will be. Amazing. All right. What's on the horizon for you? What's the next frontier for Dr. Girard? Well, I, I think um, I think you could tell from my career that uh, I basically had no idea what I was doing two years ahead of time at any stage of my career. So I, I want to keep my eyes open and, you know, have the opportunities to serve in any way I can. I'm very committed to pushing the paradigm of test to treat and supporting pharmacists and infectious diseases in other ways. And, you know, I didn't plan to write a book. I didn't want to write a book. Uh, but in the midsummer of 2021, I just felt sort of compelled. Uh, I don't know everything. I don't know all the details, but I know what happened. And I want us to learn. Look, 400,000 people died under President Trump when I was there. 700,000 people died under President Biden. Everybody's trying to do the best they can. We need to learn and we need to learn from our mistakes and the things we did well. And I also wanted to highlight uh, the heroes that you don't hear about. You know, you hear about the people in the cabinet or, uh, you know, CEO here or there. But, you know, the pandemic, uh, as I experienced it, many of the solutions were by normal people, some in the government, some who just volunteered to do great things. Many of them are, you know, pharmacy leaders. Uh, many of them are just people from the community who dropped everything and came to Washington or came within their own community. So I wanted to tell a lot of those stories. I can't wait to read the book. For those who are listening, when does it come out? It's called Memoir of a Pandemic, Fighting COVID from the Front Lines to the White House, which pretty much described what I did. Uh, it'll be available in bookstores at the end of April. It's, it's available now. Buy a copy, share it around to all your friends because the most important thing is to get the ideas out there. Well, thank you. Um, speaking for everyone here at SureScripts, and I'm sure for all of our listeners and more, thank you for your service and thank you for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your story. You're exactly who we need to push American healthcare forward. And as you say, the most important thing is to get the ideas out there. So I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of your new book, Memoir of a Pandemic, Fighting COVID from the Front Lines to the White House. It's available in bookstores now. Thank you for your service, Dr. Girard, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.